Chapter 13 of Dog Watches at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King. Chapter 13 Man o' War's Man. I was a novice on board a man of war. As soon as I reached the spar deck, I was buttonholed by a petty officer wearing an eagle on his shirt sleeve who said I was in the foretop, his part of the ship. This was foreign to me. We were piped to supper. The ship's corporal showed me my mess table, and I relished my first meal on a man o' war. It was a pleasant discovery to find that I no longer had to care for my pot, pan, and spoon, and to hustle around for my food at mealtimes. Here a man was detailed to care for the mess gear and clean up after meals. All I had to do was to sit at the swinging table, which was hooked to the deck above, and eat my fill. At supper I formed the acquaintance of a blue shirt. Tommy Pavour. From him I learned that an officer or petty officer could not abuse me, and I should be punished if caught fighting with a shipmate. But if at any time I was forced to fight, I could go down to the stokehole or the bag room in the forepeak out of sight of Jimmy Legs, the master at arms, or the ship's corporals. These secluded places were constantly used by the men in which to settle disputes. Shortly after supper, Bob Wilkes blew his whistle, and like a roaring lion yelled, Foretop men, fill the scuttlebutt! The captain of the foretop hustled his men below to the freshwater pump. Here we relieved each other at the pump handle till the scuttlebutt, a large cask, used to contain the water supply for the day, on the gun deck was filled. Then came another blow of his whistle, and that vociferous shout, Stand by your hammocks! Knowing that mine was on the berth deck, I watched the antics of the boatswain's mate and the men. All hands gathered by the hammock nettings, and opening along the top of the rail, extending from the break of the poop, to abreast the foremast. A toot from the whistle sent a man from each part of the ship into the nettings. Then the officer of the deck, standing by the mainmast, said, Pipe down! A long, shrill whistle, and the men in the nettings shouted the numbers on the hammocks and passed them to the men. Every man on a man-of-war has a ship's number, which is marked on his hammock and a paymaster's number, which is stamped on his bag. I went below to the berth deck, and took my hammock from among those belonging to the men who had enlisted that day. I hooked this to two hammock hooks on the gun deck. After removing the lashing, I lifted myself and tried my new bed. No sooner was I in, than out I came on the opposite side. My hammock clues had been fastened so unevenly that as I jumped in the thing careened, turned bottom up, 
and dashed me and my bedding on the deck. This created a laugh. Tom Pevour came to my rescue and taught me how to sling a hammock and how to fasten the clues so that it would swing evenly. During this time I was delivering a harangue to the few who were indulging in contemptuous merriment at my expense. I loudly declared that although unaccustomed to the ways of man-o'-war life, I could show some of them what sailorizing was, and that I was able to guzzle any one of them. One of the recruits, a farmhand from Vermont, who had enlisted as landsman about two weeks previous to this, thought he knew it all. Tom Pevour whispered in my ear, Choke his luff. I did. I jumped at him, and we struggled in each other's embrace till Pevour dragged me bodily from the crowd, saying, Cheese it. Here comes the marine sergeant. I saw that the only way to gain prestige among these men was to fight and win a battle. Accordingly, I followed my man from Vermont to the door of the head in the eyes of the ship on the spar deck, and hidden by the carpenter shop, clinched with him again. We pounded each other till he cried, Enough! I was as badly used up as he was, and was glad to let it drop. This engagement sufficed to show the others that I could defend myself. There were between two and three hundred recruits on board. That night the spar deck of the old Wabash resembled an immense caravansary, a warlike world by itself. Her spotless deck swarmed with sailors, many, like myself, raw recruits. Some were landsmen who had never seen a ship till they landed here, and therefore knew nothing of ship life. Others, old man-o'-war's men, big discharge fellows, who knew the ropes, kept by themselves. These old stagers took good care to see that we, the greenhorns, did the work of answering calls and cleaning decks. In the gun ports and other parts of the deck, the men grouped in cliques. By being friendly with Pavour, I was welcomed to a gathering of old-timers, and watching their movements and questioning them, I soon entered into the spirit of man-o'-war life. A crowd forward on the spar deck engaged in a game of cards called Honest John, anything but honest. It was manipulated by a few who had control of the game and knew the private marks on the cards. Seeing others haul in their handsome stakes, I put my money down, and within an hour, with other fools like myself, lost our month's advance. When Honest John is played fair and square, no one envies the banker. But when, with the aid of marked cards and accomplices, he defrauds, they consider it dishonest. While the banker was handling the cards, he had sentinels on the lookout for the master-at-arms, the ship's corporal, the sergeant of marines, or any other person in authority who would stop the game and report the banker. Until two bells, nine o'clock, above the general din of merrymaking around the decks, the game was undisturbed, 
At this time the boatswain's mate trilled his whistle in piping down. Occasionally Brady, the ship's corporal, walked forward, but the sentinels gave the signal as he showed his head above the forehatch combings. In the twinkling of an eye, cards and money disappeared, and the wash-deck locker, used as the banker's table, was a rest for a checkerboard. The scene presented was of a crowd enjoying a song or engaged in some frolicsome sport. After blowing his whistle, the old boatswain's mate shouted to a few stragglers who were slow in turning in to keep silence. In a few moments the old ship was as quiet as a tomb. That night I slept soundly. Next morning the trill of the boatswain's whistle roused me. Old Bob Wilkes, standing by the side of my hammock, yelled, All hands! Then blowing another call and shouting, up all hammocks he almost deafened me i sprang from my hammock and began to lash it for stowing in the netting but did not haul the turns taut enough when i reached the deck it was baggy and loose the blankets were bulging out and the whole thing resembled an ungainly slovenly bundle as i reached the spar deck bob wilkes saw me taking hold of my hammock he twisted me around and said in a gruff voice, My grandmother could lash a hammock better than that. Go below and give it a respectable lash. Looking at him, I answered, Yes, your grandmother must have been a man-of-war's man to produce such a fine specimen as you. What's that you say? I repeated my statement and meant it. He was a splendid sailor, an old war veteran, with fully a dozen bullet holes in his body, cheerful and liked by every man. He believed I was earnest, and was rather pleased at my remark. Following me to the gun deck, he taught me how to fold the blankets and place them on the mattress, how many turns to take with the lashing around the hammock, and how to expend the end of the lashing. Unhooking the tied hammock, he stuck the clues between the turns of the lashing, and patting the whole thing with his hand, said, Young man, that's the way to lash a hammock. When I was a young man in the Navy, we had to lash our hammocks so they would pass through a hoop made for that purpose, before we could stow them in the nettings. Things have changed now. Any old way will do. That morning, after the decks were mopped and cleaned, at three bells we mustered for quarters. Now I was put through my first drill in facing about and marching. I learned rapidly, and within a week I was taken from the awkward squad and drilled with the others. As the days rolled on, I was trained in the usual routine of big gun drill, rifle drill, single stick exercise, and marching. The men out of debt to the government for their clothing and on the first-class conduct list were granted liberty. In April came the day when I could muster aft on the quarter-deck with the Liberty Party. Although I had no friends except the ones in the boarding-house, I felt a real sense of gladness to be once more outside the Navy Yard gate. It was springtime. 
No peacoat was needed. As I wended my way along in my blue sailor uniform, I was conceited enough to think every person I met was noticing me. The Rose family welcomed me. Having no money to spend, I remained in their company that evening, and at ten o'clock returned on board, clean and sober. When the Liberty Party returned, some of the old stagers smuggled whiskey aboard. The Navy has changed. The battleship, with its complicated machinery and numerous improvements, has given positions to men of skill. Today, instead of the earlier type of man-o'-war's man, our Navy is more largely manned by young men from good homes. They maintain their self-respect, and much of that planning and scheming to smuggle liquor on board is becoming a thing of the past. Before the war with Spain, the man-o'-war's man was seemingly shunned by people on shore. Now he is welcome in many places, and his company is acceptable. His conduct on shore has noticeably changed. Instead of the open door of vile resorts, healthy places of amusement and recreation are frequented by him. Reading rooms, where the men can smoke, play games, and purchase a cup of coffee, are established for their sole use, and here they enjoy an atmosphere of comparative refinement. Many seamen, who are far from home, take advantage of their opportunities to see the best of the world, visiting places of historic interest, and thereby gaining knowledge of inestimable value to them. Once, while at the wharf at Hampton Roads, Virginia, as stroke oarsman in the captain's gig of the old corsage, I saw the officer of the boat enter the Hygieia Hotel. I followed him, thinking it would be easy to gain admission, but a color boy sneered at me as he said, No enlisted men allowed in here, and motioned for me to leave the premises. I suppose the worst rascal in civilian's dress would have been welcomed. Simply because I wore the blue uniform of the Navy, I was considered unfit to enter a hotel. It would require a book of itself to tell of the many schemes, the plots and plans, the queer devices used by the old man-o'-war's man to smuggle liquor aboard. The men with whom I chummed were all big discharge men. Under the impression that they were the ideal tars, I adopted their ways and habits. A small discharge is not dishonorable. The difference is that a big discharge is a continuous service certificate, whereby an enlisted man, if he conducts himself so that at the expiration of his enlistment his marks in seamanship, gunnery, sobriety, etc., average a possible twenty out of twenty-five, he is given a continuous certificate. This entitles him to three months' pay, providing he re-enlists three months from date of discharge, and besides this, one dollar a month is added to his wages for every such discharge. The liquor these men brought on board with them was of the vilest kind. Two restricted old-timers, who had not been on shore for nearly a month, 
were in the heated dispute which developed into a fierce struggle the disturbance was soon quelled for the master at arms took them to the mainmast where all offenders are brought before the officer of the deck they were put under the sentry's charge on the berth deck to be brought before the commanding officer next morning the police duty on a warship is executed by the marine guard dressed in a soldier's uniform they guard all prisoners and watch the scuttlebutt that no water is taken except for drinking they take their place on the forecastle head and gangways to hail all boats to prevent anyone from leaving the ship and to hinder citizens coming on board without permission from the officer of the deck at sea the post on the forecastle head is removed and a marine stationed aft at the life buoy at nine o'clock every morning the master-at-arms who is the chief of police brings all delinquents to the mast the officer of the deck sends word to the commanding officer that the delinquents are at the mast he appears abaft the fife rail and in company with the executive officer the officer of the deck the ship's writer and master-at-arms listens to the charges brought against the men punishment is meted according to the offence the man may have overstayed his liberty been insolent to an officer or petty officer or may have struck a shipmate the different modes of punishment are as plentiful as the offences an enlisted man may be reduced a class or four classes in the conduct list which stops his liberty on shore taking a month to regain a class on the list he may be given several hours extra duty which means that he must work while his comrades are idling about the decks if the offence is serious he may be sentenced to ten days double irons both hands and feet on the berth deck under a sentry's charge or to five days bread and water in the brig a small room used as a cell for solitary confinement the offence may require the trial of a general or summary court-martial then if the offender be found guilty he must suffer from one month to five years imprisonment generally the punishment of a summary court is carried out on board ship while that of a general court is executed in the naval prison in some united states navy yard at the forward end of the berth deck on the wabash there are four brigs with a small porthole in each next morning my two comrades were sentenced to five days bread and water in solitary confinement not realizing the need of strictest discipline on a war vessel and that for being drunk on duty as these men had been their punishment was light it seemed to me very cruel to keep them confined and hungry for five days so i decided to feed them at meal hours i would collect pieces of meat and bread and a beer bottle of coffee fastening the end of a ball of spun yarn on a parcel of food i would await a favorable opportunity and secreting myself in the fore chains would lower the food on a line with the portholes in each brig the men expected it 
and quickly drew the parcels into their cells. The beer bottles were concealed in the cells, and when the prisoners were taken on deck, which happened every four hours, I removed the empty bottles. I knew that if detected my punishment would be worse than theirs, but I was not discovered. When the sentence was served, and the men returned to duty, we became close friends. From them I learned much of a man-of-war man's life. As they had no liberty but money to spend, they gave me a portion of their store to waste for them, in return for which I was to smuggle a bottle of liquor on board. While this is not an offense on a merchantman, it is a very serious thing if detected on a warship. The bottom of the trousers leg is wide enough to conceal a flask securely fastened to the limb above the ankle. These old salts showed me the exact place to lash the bottle so that the corporal at the gangway would not feel it when searching me on my return. Fortunately, there were several men returning from liberty when I mounted the gangway. The corporal was hurried in his search. He felt the folds of my shirt and ran his hands along the outside of my trousers. Then he passed me on to report my return to the officer of the deck. I walked forward and gave my first smuggled bottle of liquor to the two old soaks. As the spring opened, we began to clean the old ship. The rigging was tarred and the mast and yards painted. Then orders came from Washington to dismantle her. Rigged as a full-rigged ship, lower and topsail yards crossed, although roofed over, the old Wabash had a dignified warlike appearance. Standing on the shore at night, the lights on deck shining through her gun ports resembled the lights of a distant city. Some of the old sailors growled at the work of dismantling her. Others thought it sacrilege to dismantle so fine a ship. For two weeks, attired in white working clothes, we wore off that lazy, tired feeling that comes from doing nothing by stripping the old warrior to her lower mast. It would have been easy work, but for the wooden roof covering the whole spar deck. As it was, we had to rig a purchase from the shore to the ship and haul the heavy yards clear of the eaves to get them over the side. All the gear loft was stiff and rusty for want of use. Still, she was stripped of her beauty without an accident. The decks were wholly stoned and cleaned, and the routine of drill and loafing around the decks was resumed. The method of wholly stoning the deck of a warship is easier than that on an old windjammer. Here, instead of kneeling and rubbing a small stone on the deck, a strap is fastened around a large stone, two pieces of rope are spliced to the strap, and a man on each rope's end hauls the stone backward and forward. A third man guides it along the deck with a long stick. During the early part of May, orders came to transfer all the recruits to the guard ship Vermont at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. We hustled and made preparations for leaving. 
the paymaster's accounts were signed and we were put on board the tug and conveyed to a landing near the old colony depot the old wabash seemed deserted only a few men were left those who had enlisted for one year to do special service on that particular ship some of the men had friends in boston who had come to the station to see them off though the marines and officers vigilantly watched every movement to prevent anyone from obtaining liquor yet several men were amply supplied seated at the car windows before the train started the splendid catches of the men as they stopped the speed of the bottles thrown them would have qualified them as catchers on any baseball team with no disturbance except the heavy rolls of a few old tars who were doing their best to hold up with their load we reached the deck of the old vermont there were several warships at the cob dock just before sunset i was on the deck close to the u s s uniata i heard the whistle of the boatswain's mate and then his loud voice yelling all hands down to gallant royal yards and to gallant masts she was bark rigged in a moment every man was at his station the executive officer stood on the poop deck and gave his orders first to gallant and royal yard men on the sheer pole at this the light yard men were in the rigging then came the order top men on the sheer poles aloft to gallant and royal yard men aloft top men like monkeys in a forest these nimble fellows ran up the ratlines till they reached their stations aloft it astonished me to see how quickly they ran aloft when the executive officer said stand by and the drummer boy was told to roll off the whole maneuver was more than my slow-going sailing ship experience could grasp the shrill whistle the roll of the drum the sound of the bugle mingled with the voices of the men completely confused me i had sent down a yard on a merchantman which had required much time and labor here in a few moments they had stripped this vessel to her topmast i could not understand how they did it presently my old friend pavour hove in sight i headed him off and had him explain it all to me he readily revealed the use of the strap and toggle an iron grommet on which the lifts and braces are hooked fits over the yard arm a strap and toggle holds the yard rope to the quarter of the yard and a tripping line having a snotter made of flat sennet attached to it pulls the lower lift and brace off and guides the yard on its way to the deck at the command stand by the tripping line is let go from the slings of the yard and at the order sway the yard rope being hooked out to the quarter of the yard trips the yard as the men on deck haul on it the light yard men quickly catch the grommets as they leave the yard arms and hook them to small hooks in the cross trees and royal jacks placed there for that purpose of course this necessitates having lifts reaching to the deck 
while in port the foot ropes on the light yards are forward of the mast and no parallel lashings are passed the short ties are always unrove and the yard rope is rove through a gin block hooked to the iron funnel on which the eyes of the rigging are placed all the rigging is fitted over these iron funnels and when the weight of the yards is off the yard ropes a pull on the mast rope enables the tagallant yard men to haul out the mast fid and down comes the naked mast as the truck leaves the topmost cap a turn of a running lizard on the standing part of the mast rope is passed around the masthead which holds the mast upright in its descent the funnels with the rigging around them rest on each other all on the topmost cap next morning a man goes aloft on each mast and straightens out everything in readiness for sending the mast and yards aloft i understood all of this man-o'-war seamanship and could see by the yards in the lower rigging and the mast on deck the fullness of pavour's instructions yet i hoped that when it came my turn to be drafted to a sea-going ship i should not be stationed on a light yard before having an opportunity to examine the rig aloft i had been on the vermont about a week when one day at dinner the boatswain's mate blew his whistle and bawled now do you hear there at this everybody was quiet and he went on all you men whose names i call go down to the paymaster's office and sign your accounts my name was among the twenty-five we knew we were drafted for some ship whether in the brooklyn navy yard or not we could not tell i gathered with the others at the paymaster's office signed my accounts and was told to be ready to leave for norfolk virginia to join the u s s alliance in charge of an ensign and a ship's corporal we started on the old dominion for norfolk next afternoon we reached the dock and were taken in a steam launch alongside the alliance with bags and hammocks we mustered on the quarter-deck in the presence of commander mcgregor i felt shaky when lieutenant commander george e Ide, the executive officer told me my number was two hundred and sixty-four and that i was mean to gallant yard man stowing my bag below on the berth deck and my hammock in the netting worrying about the method of sending the tagallant yard aloft in the morning i reported to the captain of the main top as one of his men End of chapter thirteen